1: What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabbar. What's up, man? How are you? Chilling, man. How about yourself? I cannot complain. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm fresh off. I'm fresh off Broadway. Oh, fresh friend. off
0: Broadway. Fresh okay. off
1: Broadway. Not as in I was performing in Broadway, but I went to a Broadway a Broadway play. What'd you see? Dear Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen. Have you ever heard of that? I don't know. <laughs> so here's some context. So um, it was uh, a birthday present for my girlfriend. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm better at getting events than picking out things or material things. I'm not very good at that. So I felt it would be a better idea for me just to, to, to get her tickets to a Broadway show because, okay. you know, most women, they really enjoy them. Well, and I honestly, think most people like doing it, it, it in than receiving And honestly, things. I'll be completely honest. I may act like I'm kicking and screaming when I'm brought to Broadway plays or Broadway shows, but mm-hmm. when I'm there, I actually have a lot of fun. And <laughs> whatever song, whatever song, the big headlining songs are always stuck in my head. But it. The idea came to me um, after the show. Like, I obviously, like, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was obviously listening to the soundtrack afterwards. Like, (laughs) I was like, I (laughs) want to listen to this song again. It was so fun. Um, What would be good musical ideas for topics that we often speak about on the show? I don't know. (laughs) Like, if you were going to adapt bro history topics into a musical, what would you adapt? Hmm. Uh,
0: Maybe like uh, the impeachment inquiry and like make it like Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) (laughs) I would. So
1: here's Phantom of
0: the impeachment,
1: you know. (laughs) Here's what I would do. So I would do a musical on the Iranian revolution or the 1953 coup Uh leading up to the Iranian revolution and focus the musical on the Shah of Iran. Would it be like in the style of Rent? I don't know what Rent is. <laughs> you don't know what Rent is?
0: All right. What, what is Rent? Rent was one of the most popular Broadway shows, like, ever. And it was about, like, uh, spoiler alert, it's about, like, AIDS in, like, the <laughs> early 90s or whatever. Oh. And it's, like, just a bunch of people, like, living in New York, and, like, some of them gets AIDS.
1: You know this song? Everyone 500... has AIDS. Yes. That's AIDS, what that... AIDS, 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 AIDS. That's... that's what it's making fun of? Yes. <laughs> I was exactly. thinking... I was thinking of the title and then I also and I and I, and I uh, started writing songs for it as well not really <laughs> writing songs but I would love to work with somebody in the future for the grand rendition of The Shaw and I and it's about the relationship between Richard Nixon in the Shah of Iran. Oh, I love that. Because they were Shaw. buddies. <laughs> Those are two main <laughs> characters. Oh, me and you are like, oh. <laughs> Can you imagine a yeah. duet between the Shah of Iran and Richard Nixon in a Broadway play? Yeah. How how funny that would be seeing Richard Nixon in the Shah of Iran in a Broadway production doing a Singing duet? Singing so like, I never yeah. thought someone would be like me. <laughs> <laughs> and then have these like grand, fantastical, like, set Persian shit, yeah set designs with the Shah of iran and then you can go over the story from like the the kermit roosevelt like coup of Mossadegh in iran that's how you started off and mm-hmm. obviously you can't be historically accurate with these things like you know you gotta you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta flub some you gotta stuff, flub yeah. some stuff and make characters where they're not you know you gotta put them in different time periods where they never right. existed so you got to make Kermit Roosevelt like a reoccurring character, even though his role kind of ends it after the coup mm-hmm. uh, within that relationship. And you, you lead it up to like the, the, sh- the uh, Ayatollah of Iran being released f- into, Ira- to, into Iran from Iraq. And you have like a badass song for him. He's like the villain.
0: Right, he'd have like a <laughs> like a Darth Vader theme song, you know? Like. Yeah,
1: like a real like a like a like an evil song. It's mm-hmm. like I am the Ayatollah, like something ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. It, it would be it would be a. I'd huge, watch that. I'm playing off the King and I, which was mm-hmm. a famous which was a famous. Uh, I, I think it was a Broadway show. It was a musical like from the 30s or 40s, and um, the Shaw and I, the relationship between Richard Nixon and the Shaw, because they were best buddies. They, they sounds It like,
0: sounds like we should pitch this to Netflix. They could probably make that.
1: No, but it needs everything to be on now. stage. <laughs> no one's going to want to see people singing on their TV screens. you got to see know, a live know, Broadway Netflix production. Netflix does a lot of shit. Of the you know? And I. Or we can do... I can't think of another good Broadway uh, production on topics that we speak about. Like, could you do a Toyota War episode or a Toyota War Broadway production? Maybe. A or like a Millennium Challenge <laughs> one. <laughs> a musical on the millennium challenge <laughs> how about a musical on uh all of them all of them have to do with the middle east because i feel I like got an idea so what grand. about what about
0: something for uh
1: Aladdin, the f35 like... you know remember <laughs> remember
0: um uh what was the name of the uh movie that we watched on the uh, um bradley the pentagon wars okay so you know the pentagon wars but make it like current for like the f35 uh and i'm thinking have you ever seen the producers before yeah. Okay, so you know how in the producers they like intentionally try to make the worst possible uh Broadway show? Yeah, right? isn't
1: it? Isn't it like Springtime with Hitler or something yeah, like I that? Yeah, I love that song. <laughs> it's
0: hilarious. So imagine if they were singing about like try if they if the show was about trying to make the the most expensive like worst possible like military equipment. And it's like
1: like that <laughs> you got to you got to get some some uh some relevant historic characters in there and then you have yourself a show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. guys I'll Flesh that one out and we'll talk about it. hey if if you, if if you guys are listening
0: if you have uh, hit ideas us up on twitter yeah or or like email us uh some ideas for at info uh, at
1: bro history email us musicals um based off historic topics or maybe things that we speak about info have pro history our musical we'll we'll start writing it we'll find a production crew to start writing this musical <laughs> all right um, let's get into the actual show so um there's been a lot of talk about world war 3 lately if you uh you know if you if you're on the old twitterverse there's that world war 3 meme that went I'm, out i'm digging the memes yeah they're hilarious and um, yeah, they're they're kind of funny and a lot of people are comparing a lot of the things that have been happening in the Middle East, specifically the Salomani, the assassination, to kind of like a Gavrilo Princep uh, the murder of Archduke Ferdinand right. type moment. And I think we even referenced that yeah, definitely, before yeah. he was even murdered, like what would be that moment. Yeah. And I thought it was actually a really good time to not necessarily tackle current events today, but uh, reflect on, on World War I, like what actually led to World War I, um, you know, what were the major themes behind the start of the war, um, like, like what the hell happened? This was the most, this was one of the most brutal affairs in human history. The meat grinders. Millions and millions of people died. Um, the, the economies of Europe were shattered and the consequences of World War I eventually led to World War II so a major event and you know the major themes of world war 1 obviously is you know the industrial revolution meets meets warfare modern warfare is is uh is uh it, it exists now it's it's the, we're we're now using machine guns and and uh cannons that are 200 200,000 pounds um you know we're talking about a hundred years prior to that. Cannons are about two hundred and fifty pounds. Now we're talking about two hundred thousand, well, probably more than two hundred and fifty, like two thousand pounds, maybe. But now these cannons are about two hundred thousand pounds. They're ship cannons, but they're on the field. They're brought by plant. They're brought by trains. We're talking about airplanes, uh, machine gun power, Gatling guns, primitive um, tanks, gas, uh, mm-hmm. land mines. We're, we're talking about an entire an entire new flavor of warfare that was very brutal and that massacred and slaughtered millions and millions and millions of people. And, um, you know, I, I think that the subject of World War One is beginning is getting a lot more um, interest because there was a ma- there was a major film that was produced recently, 1917. I still have yet to see it, but I, I want to step back and talk about the origins of World War One, not necessarily the warfare, but like what exactly led to this war, because I think it's, it's good could reflect on how these things end up happening and, and uh, you know, you know, are these things avoidable or are, are these like catastrophes in human society avoidable at all? Or, or do they just take on a life um, of their own when they start to, to happen? But I think in, 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 a, in a sentence, like, what did you learn in history class, Danny, when it when it came to World War One, Did you spend much time on it? Did they no. – did your teachers <laughs> – did you kind of just skip by it and be like, okay, there was this gas mask in our, World War II. This is the juicy stuff. Oh, atomic bombs, Hitler, right. Nazi, Nazis. All, all I
0: learned was that some prince was killed and it pissed a bunch of people off, and then everybody went to war with each other about it. That's literally
1: all of it. And that's kind of what most people are, are taught – within World War One, what we what we're typically taught in history class is the the alliance system. So the European powers were all in this alliance system, meaning if one country was attacked, their allies would have to join in. So to set the stage up, Serbia was allied with Russia, which in turn would protect it from Austria, Austria, and I'm talking about the Austria, Austria, Hungarian Empire, was allied with the German Empire. And Russia was allied with France against the threat of a German attack. In theory, this alliance system was meant to be a deterrent. However, it actually just turned Europe into a big tripwire bomb. Because if any of these countries were to go to war with each other, a chain of reaction would go off and then everything would turn to shit.
0: Well, what's the difference between, like, say, those alliances then... And alliances like NATO today. Do you think that we're in a trip tripwire now by having those mutual um, uh,
1: defense uh, treaties? So, I mean, you can certainly make that argument about these defense treaties, like NATO, bringing us into war, especially in the case of of NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe and and expanding closer to Russian interest. Um, however, the major difference now is that you know we live in a world today that the United States dominates the world. Like the U.S. is the empire. Back then, there were many empires. there were many powers. there were many first rate powers it wasn 't just the u s right. so you had more you had this 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 tripwire bomb powder keg that was set <clears throat> up because everyone had the ability to kill each other it wasn 't just like the u s can come in and kill each other. I mean now you can argue it 's a lot worse just because we have nuclear bombs and are able to you know realistically destroy the probably, whole planet. Destroy the destroy a state within a matter of a couple of hours with a couple of you know with a couple of 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 uh, nuclear weapons. However, um, I think it's a little different. But like all parallels, you know, none of them are, are perfect matches. You know, there there's going to be similarities and there's going to be differences. But w- when you when you start talking about World War One, you got to start off by talking about how you know the the. the no one touches on this. The decline of the Ottoman Empire right. is a major theme of this war. So, the reason why this alliance system was so risky was because it associated Europe's most unstable regions. And these unstable regions in Europe were the Balkans, the, the mm-hmm. Balkans area in southeastern southeastern Europe. Right. So, the de facto power in that region for hundreds of years was the Ottoman Empire. However, the Ottomans were a declining power at that time. So throughout the 1800s, um, within the Balkans, um, these, these states, they started transitioning from Ottoman provinces to, to vassal states, to independent kingdoms, to sovereign, to, to, to sovereign states. And with the decline of the Ottomans... Austria-Hungary and Russia started filling those power gaps within that power vacuum. so Ottomans are declining, so you have other powers that are moving in and trying to get their interest in. the major players are being the ones that are that share borders. Russia on the east and then you have austria-Hungary they start competing for interest within those within those Balkan states and those regions that they are competing with or they, they, they were competing for, in, rather. or competing mm-hmm. for, excuse me, mm-hmm. um, there were many different nationalities that shared that space, which included Slavs, which included Germans, Bosnians, Hungarians, Hungarians Romanians, and Bulgarians. It, it made things incredibly difficult to control. Well, it's starting to sound
0: pretty uh, familiar, you know? Uh, you know. It sounds a lot to me like the Middle East, you know. Uh, we had, like, some powerful countries in the Middle East, and, you know, Once those countries were toppled, you know, uh, then, you know, we've got a pretty diverse set of of peoples, you know, with different cultures and, you know, competing interests and things like that. And then a bunch of giant superpowers trying to, you know, uh, wane influence over them.
1: Yeah, that's the common comparison you're typically hearing is that the Middle East is the Balkans of World War One. Mm-hmm. Like It's the modern day Balkans or vice versa when they right. refer to when you're trying to explain the Balkan region in the early 20th century, you compare it to the Middle East, which is a fair comparison. Um, a lot of nationalistic movements, a lot of sectarian division. Um, in the case of, of the Balkans, it was more of a, a national division, an ethno-language division.
0: Right, rather than a, a theocracy. The- a theocratic or a, um, a, a, like a religious uh, divisions.
1: But the, but the major theme is, though, is that one, a power declined, and, and it's, it's the Ottoman Empire. It's the same empire that declined within the Middle East that made everything pretty crazy when they declined. You know, right. all these states are, are creating, you know, the Ottoman Empire that stretched from the Middle East all the way over to the Balkans. It was a right. very, very vast, large amount of territory. So that when that started to decline, they governed a really, really large body of ethnic of, of ethnic. Um, sectarian groups, they divided them into different provinces and, and when they declined, you have kind of like a, a crazy situation because there's different ethnic groups within different borders um, or different sovereign borders which cause which caused resentment within the homeland of those of those countries. Now you got to start with Serbia because obviously they were serbian nationalists and and austria declares war on on serbia to be to i guess to officially kick off the war and serbia at that time during the start of world war one was a cauldron of ultra nationalist sentiment so there were secret societies that were promoting this idea of a greater serbia and this idea was a a pseudo-mystical, ultra-nationalist narrative. And it was based on the idea of restoring the old, greater Serbia of the Ottoman Empire. Hmm. So in the mind of the Serbian nationalists, this was a really glorious chapter in history. So back in, in the 1300s, the Serbian Empire, it covered most of the Balkan Peninsula. However... There was internal strife. There was civil. the The, the empire was divided, and it ended up. It ended tragically, with with Prince Lazar of Serbia, histor- heroically fighting to the last breath the Battle of Kosovo. You know, he was fighting off Turkish Janissaries, mm-hmm. and it was just a legend that was really mystified, or an historical event that was very that was that was, um, you know, in, in Serbian poetry. It was just a a common story and a. Uh, it was, uh, I guess, a, a common narrative within the Serbian nationalists. Now, the problem of the idea of a Greater Serbia was that the expansive concept of what Greater Serbia was, was, um, was kind of unclear or extremely intrusive, rather. So some of these radicals, they considered every spot on which a Serbian Orthodox church that ever existed, Serbian territory, so there's this famous quote there's this famous quote, and I forget it, I forget exactly what it is. It's um I'm paraphrasing it. It's uh you know, wherever a Serb is, that is Serbia. Hmm. That was a type of mm. alternationalist behavior or the alternationalist narratives that were going on within the country. Like mm-hmm. we're here to liberate all Serbs, we're here to be the protectorates of all Serbs within the Balkans, and wherever a Serb is, that is Serbia. So it All creates right, well, quite the it creates quite the issue when we're talking about um, when we're talking about multiple nationalities and ethno language groups living in the same area. All right. Well, bringing it
0: back to like modern times, uh, the first thing I'm thinking about when you're describing, you know, this idea of you know uh, these Serbian nationalists and the idea of a Greater Serbia. I'm not gonna lie; it kind of sounds a lot to me like ISIS and creating a new caliphate you know um sounds like pretty similar i mean you know uh the the caliphate was you know pre-modern history you know they wanted to start that up again uh they had a very you know nationalist i guess not necessarily nationalist but like theocratic approach to it which would be the difference there um but you know they want the entire
1: caliphate to be you know stretching wherever there was
0: muslims basically you know
1: um to me to me the, the greater concept sounds a lot is a lot more parallel with modern day Israel um than, than okay. ISIS. Because like, you know, there's historic ties that are based off theology to that land and it's the historic homeland of, of, of the Jews. It sounds a lot more I think the parallel is a lot closer to the to uh to Israeli nationalism than than um than ISIS. Because ISIS was like purely bent off like just Sharia law expansion of the caliphate and redoing the borders of of uh I mean you can make both comparisons, but I, I kind of see I see Israel as a better comparison. However, um so back to Serbia, um, like how did all this start happening? So mm-hmm. um so through the eighteen hundreds, when the Ottoman Empire was in, was in decline, Serbia was basically ran by either one or one or another rival family at any given time. So, there was, uh, there was uh, I'm going to butcher these names, the, the Karajovic family and the Ibrahimovic dynasties. And basically, these two dynasties, they ruled, they ruled Serbia uh, from the period from when it was a vast, from an Ottoman territory to when it became an independent kingdom um, for about 100 years. It started with a with the Karajovic uh, dynasty, um, they, you know, they they are the ones who initially rebelled, uh, rebelled against the Ottomans. The, the rebellion was put down. There was a new ruler that was put in place, and then both of these families kind of had claims to the throne, and they assassinated each other. There was all these political machinations. There was there was coups, pretty much every decade, or even shorter than that. We're talking about like. Ancient Rome type level of, of turnaround within the executive office. Like it, the turnover would be very quickly between these two families. Mm-hmm. One ruler would be assassinated, another family wouldn't put in place. In turn, another would resign because of unpopular sentiment or out of force resignation. It was incredibly unstable. And that was Serbia for about 100 years. And by 1903, so we're, we're going into the, the end of the 19th century or early 20th century, there was a very unpopular leader named uh, Alexander, King Alexander um, on the Oberhenovic side. And at this time, Serbia was behind the rest of Europe economically. And this guy had a very unpopular wife as well, who was about 10 years his senior and who also was rumored to have slept around a lot. Hmm. Um, People, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's quotes from his own cabinet saying how, like, we 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 got with her <laughs> yeah like we've we uh had sex with your queen type thing and where it caused all types of problems because it's never a good look like imagine if if uh, prince william married a porn star or something like that who was mm-hmm. 10 years older than him it it wouldn't look it would it wouldn't be a good look for the royal family so I mean, sounds like a Mer-
0: like a Game of Thrones episode to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, she was ten years a senior. She I don't think she was much of a handsome woman either. She she wasn't a handsome woman. <laughs> um, it it just wasn't it wasn't a good look. But besides that, a lot of people saw him as a pro as pro Austrian. you know they saw the entire family as pro Austrian stooges, and. Um, he exiled his father, who was actually popular with the military. He There was a lot of failed government projects that were going on. Um, his father was a monster as well. However, um, at the very least, he was popular within the ranks of the military. Mm-hmm. He lost that support when he exiled him. Um, and eventually, this guy is murdered. Uh, he's murdered along with his wife. And it's not just your average assassination that takes place in 1903, but it is a full-on military coup Gaddafi level of violence. Oh, so we're, we're talking about not like someone slipping cyanide into your drink and you're, and you are you know, you're dying. They, I mean, I don't know what, what death feels like from cyanide. I don't think it's that painful. I think it's kind of quick. That's why people commit suicide with cyanide after. Uh, it probably but, sucks, that's why but, Nazis, but moreover, it, but we're it, doing it, it. it's not so but, bad to look at. <laughs> yeah. So this was a full on, incredibly violent assassination of this family. Uh, we're talking about a military coup that busts into the palace, starts shooting up royal guards, starts taking, ca- starts executing cabinet members, and then when they eventually kill them, they start mutilating the bodies, so stabbing the bodies full of wounds, and they take both of them naked, they toss them out the balcony into the garden. It basically is a sign <laughs> that we're running this country now. Jesus. So they toss them out. It's a really, it's really horrific, and the whole world was mortified by this event. Like a royal family was just assassinated um, brutally. Brutally. And it was it was frontline news. So it I was it's also kind of important so- to, to talk about the fact that,
0: you know, in this time we still had like kings and queens and shit, right? So when news about some king and queen getting brutally murdered, you know, and tossed into the garden and shit, uh, you know, it makes those monarchs feel a little bit uneasy because, you know, it might I don't know. Uh, promote some ideas within their own borders about doing crazy shit like that as well.
1: Yeah, monarchs absolutely. are
0: usually a little like uh, you know precarious about their well. Well, their well power. a lot of
1: monarchs were against the French Revolution when you know it's right when you start killing royals. You're like, oh shit, we're mm-hmm. vulnerable. Right, type thing going on. However, the I guess to some degree, the the king of Serbia the king and queen of serbia they you know they were they were new countries they had they had just had they were just granted total independence at the congress of berlin and about about 25 years i think the congress berlin's like 1873 or so um they they're kind of new so i'm sure they weren't looked upon as as first rate the other royal families are all related to each other like you know kaiser wilhelm is the is the grandchild of uh Queen Victoria. So And he's also <laughs> cousins with the Russian Tsar. Yeah, they're cousins but they're cousins with um the British royal family. They're all related. I don't think there is any direct connection. However, I digress. So and when this happens, this is obviously pretty scary for the Austrians. Now, the Austrian the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire at this time, they had an empire that included 11 different ethno-language groups. That's so That's crazy. This included it was yeah, we're talking about germs, germs germs Psycholome. germs, germs. germs german Germans, um Hungarians, uh polish uh, slavs serbs there's eleven different ones, but yes, this included Slavs and Serbs, and Austria felt that succession of the Serbs would unravel the entire empire, so they were scared that one ethnic group would succeed from the austro-hungarian empire and then when mm-hmm. that would happen everything would just start rolling out everyone would start demanding their own independence and they had kind of a weird system where the germans had most of control but they had like a, a parliamentary system as well mm-hmm. that kind of balanced out power but still the german the german side had more of the power right it was a, it was like a system that was doomed to collapse and the russians at this time the Russians were kind of encouraging the Serbs to do this, and they were linked to a lot of these secret societies in Serbia. Russian influence. Well, so it it's goes back Russians. all the way to
0: the you know World War One. The, huh?
1: the Russian influence, and the Serbians like they they started to. So let me let me let me peel this back because I kind of skipped something. So the new government that was put in place. After the assassination of King Alexander, it was a military clique, and they replaced the pro-Austrian government with an anti-Austrian government. Makes sense. Now, you know, remember that these are rival dynasties that are going back, these two families that are competing for power. So this new government pursued a pro-Russian policy, a pan-Slavist policy, and these networks of secret societies start springing up all across Serbia, and the goal was the liberation of Serb of the Serb subjects of Austria. And the way I like to think of these secret societies, and this is the prelude to the Black Hand, the group that eventually assassinates Archduke Ferdinand. I kind of spoiler think spoiler alert, <laughs> yeah. I kind Sorry. of, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> if you don't know the end of the movie at this point, then. There's uh, why while even I'm surprised you're even interested enough to listen to a history podcast um, <laughs> or history slash geopolitical podcast. But like I like to think of them kind of like a CIA type group where they do a lot of secret stuff, smuggling, gun running, uh, supporting rebels type things. Like think of like the nefarious things that the CIA does, like supporting like like uh, the Contras in, in Nicaragua or or. Supporting the Mujahideen, like that type of stuff. Uh, that, that was their role. And also th- to threaten the executive power of Serbia as well. Right. But these were filled with radicals, and the radicals who believed in this concept of the greater Serbia. And the problem is that this comes at the expense of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and again, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is a, is an empire with many different ethnic groups, and it's worried them. they didn't want everything to unravel. Now, the Russian influence the Russians were kind of encouraging Serbs to do this, and they were linked to a lot of these secret societies in Serbia. Like a lot of these guys who were in these, uh, these societies were, were, were at one point exiled by the monarch in Serbia before they were assassinated, and they spent time in Russia. Um, they were kind of some of them were radicalized by the concept of you know Pan Slavism and and all that. Not all of them, but some of them were. Um, and, and Serbia at that point started expanding. Mm-hmm. So after 1903, there was two there was two wars. There, there was there were the Balkan Wars where where Serbia essentially doubled in size. And, and the Balkan Wars is when they all these countries started they got together and they basically kicked the. The, uh, there was two Balkan wars. The first one, they kicked out the the Turks, the, the remaining remnants of of the Ottoman Empire out of out of the Balkan Peninsula, and then there was another one where they all ganged up on on um, on Bulgaria. But this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launcher online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a
0: million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/specialoffer.
1: All lowercase. That's Shopify.com/specialoffer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. I have a quote from the foreign minister from from Russia at the time. Um, he said that Serbia has only gone through the first stage of her historic road and for the attainment of her goal must still endure a terrible struggle in which her whole existence may be at stake. Hmm. The future of the inevitable struggle. That's an important so, part, the inevitable struggle. The inevitable struggle. <clears throat> so Serbia is destined... To to grow and go through this historic road to 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 liberate Slavs is the way that I type of I kind of read that and I mean it was, it seemed like there was there was a lot of Russian influence between these nationalist groups and and Russian nationals now fucking the radicals, Russia interfering in other people's elections all right there are not let's not go there so the <laughs> radicals do step up their activity later at, like at, at you know, later on, as we get closer to the outbreak of the war or prior to the war, and these nationalist societies, they started increasing their activities outside of Serbia, which is a big problem. And they, they're increasing their activities in Austrian provinces, uh, specifically th- th- those of Bosnia and um, Herzegovina. 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 And the most radical of these groups was led by a colonel, Named Dragaton Dimitrievia.
0: That's a pretty cool name.
1: <laughs> also known as the Abyss. Hmm. I just call him the Abyss. The Abyss. The Abyss. It's like <laughs> the Abyss. And um, this was, you know, he was the founder of the the Union or Death or or the Black Hand, as this more popular what is the more popular name for it. And he happened to be one of the main plotters of the 1903 coup. So the one that happened in Serbia. So at this time, he was the foremost expert in European regicide. He was the guy. He was the... He was the kingslayer. He was the kingslayer. Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So... um, Franz Joseph of Austria... He was the current king. He, at this time, he had been king since 1848. Hmm. That's a really long time. For 19, we're at 1913, 1914. This guy was ancient. He was, he was old. And his nephew, the heir, Franz Ferdinand, was the guy who had the real power. So kind of think of, like, if you think of Saudi Arabia, yep, you think I was of, just uh, gonna say that, yeah. What, you know, <laughs> King King Salman mm-hmm. his uh I forget his exact age, but he's in his eighties and he's I, I think he from what I've heard, he has stages he's in a stage of dementia to some degree, so he's not really all there. So Mohammed bin Salman actually, you know, does the majority of bleeding in that country. Like he he's he's the power. It's kind of like a situation like that where Franz Ferdinand was, was really, really old and, uh, excuse me, not Franz Ferdinand, uh, Franz Joseph was really old and his heir was kind of running shot Right. and something that Franz Ferdinand was really concerned about was the ethnic problem within the Austro-Hungarian Empire and he was looking to reform things so the way that he wanted to reform things was this either... This was his vision 20... F- 20- 30 or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, a vision 2030 type thing, but mm-hmm. more geared on easing tensions between national groups. Um, he wanted to do it by by a direction of, of federalism for the for the different national groups or through the creation of a Slavic component of the empire. So however like the, 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 the problem the, the problem would be that these concessions they would ruin the concept of the greater Serbia. So this is why Ferenc Fernand became a target by these ultranational groups within Serbia.
0: So I'm getting like Houthi vibes from this, you know, uh, from the Serbs, you know, the, uh, uh, the um, not Houthi, um, oh, help me out here. Uh, Kurd, Kurdish vibes from this, right? You know, there are some Kurds who want a Kurdistan, like a greater Kurdistan, uh, and um, the idea of you know creating smaller uh, independent principalities within different states that were you know somewhat semi-autonomous uh, for the Kurds is for those specific Kurds that want a greater Kurdistan kind of like unacceptable.
1: Yeah, you can make it. You can make a real comparison really to any any ethno-national group or, or anyone who's kind of de- who, who was demanding a state or, or trying to expand their state the Kurds don't have a state the difference is the Serbs did to have a state right and they're seeing themselves as liberators of Serbs and Slavs who are outside of their borders so mm-hmm. naturally they need to expand and their concept of expansion doesn't really have a limit because it's based off kind of a mystical legend type thing, wherever Serbs, wherever there's a Serb, that is Serbia, you know, wherever there's Serbian Orthodox where the heart Church, is. It's, it's, it, that, that is Serbia. So the, the, right. that's the major problem, is that it's like a mystical national take on on their on their borders. Um, they're not recognizing sovereign borders. And with these national groups in place, they, they wanted to expand until they felt they liberated all these Serbians. And, you know, that's one of the big dangers of this type of national tribalism or ethnic tribalism uh, when you want to expand your borders at the expense of other borders or at the the expense of other peoples. And that's that's kind of what happened. And I'm not trying to throw Serbia over on the, you know, I'm not trying to throw them under the bus as far as starting a war. I'm just trying to draw parallels to different nationalistic groups or different, Different times and and our, our current times. You're just calling we're, we're out we're what's problematic
0: about nationalism.
1: Yeah, I'm just calling mm-hmm. out like you know what were the things that stirred the pot, and and what led to the eventual assassination of of Franz Ferdinand. But in the spring of 1914, the Serbian nationals who were who were agents of the Black Hand, um, they recruited a team of young Bosnian fanatics to to kill Archduke Ferdinand and. You know, they were trained in Belgrade in Serbia, and Serbia, and they were provided with guns. They were provided with bombs. They were provided with cyanide to kill themselves after they did it. Mm-hmm. And then they were smuggled across the border. And on June 28th, uh, June 28th 1914, they killed him. They, they killed him and his wife in the streets of Sarajevo. And, um, you know, of course, we know Gavrilo Princip was the shooter who later died in prison. I think of pneumonia. Mm. But... um, that's that's kind of what what led to the eventual assassination of the Archduke. So hmm. this kind of grand idea of a of a greater Serbia that and the the reforms that he wanted to do that would unravel their ultimate national goals is what, what what led to it now this was scary not only because the the heir of the austro-hungarian Empire was assassinated but I mean now it's kind of like a real threat on your border like there's an expanding state that recently doubled in size that is um, that's that's hyper aggressive and and that's that's a it's a high nationalistic tendency and they just assassinated your leader and they have these secret societies um it, it's kind of it, it's you can't blame the Austro-Hungarians for reacting the way they did. And of course they blame Serbia for this, like even though, you know, there was not an official tie or an official link at the time of the murder. And what they ended up doing is that they gave, they gave Serbia a list of demands that they obviously couldn't abide by. And, um, they also got the green light from Germany to, to invade Serbia. And, um, Well, even before that, I think Germany was
0: egging him on to, to send them the ultimatum. And that's, that was kind of the troubling part, um, because, uh, Germany's obviously in this alliance with, uh, Austria and they're basically like, you got to make a stand about this. Like, don't let them push you around. Don't show weakness, like go for it. But, you know, we're going to talk about Germany in a second here and, and kind of their, um, you know, their hand in all of this, but. You know, one thing that I that I learned about it was that while Germany did kind of egg on um, Austria to to go ahead and send that ultimatum, they had no idea that the demands of the uh, Austria uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire to the Serbians were going to be so uh, completely ridiculous, right? Like, if I remember correctly, some of the things that they were asking of Serbia, you know, um, it, you know, the demands that they wanted was like, we want you to fire you know, random people that work in your government and public sectors that we just don't like. And also we want to be able to, you know, operate our, um, basically our military and our security, uh, folks within your borders. Right. And, and that would be like, uh, uh infringing on, you know, S- Serbian sovereignty, you know, uh, the, the types of demands that they asked for in that ultimatum were unacceptable for anyone. Um, and so, while germany did certainly egg them on i think what's important to remember is that you know they didn't they didn't write they didn't draft these this ultimatum and they also neglected to ask to see the ultimatum before they sent it along uh so you know that's that's a error on their part for sure and some other context that i learned about this was that you know we talked about earlier that there was a lot of these big Superpowers is a lot of big countries, but Austria-Hungary wasn't considered one of these big, powerful company uh, countries. Uh, As a matter of fact, a lot of people saw them as a lot of other countries saw them as a as an empire in decline, right? Um, And you know, when they sent along the ultimatum, they basically they didn't even read that shit. They they didn't take it seriously uh, because they just quite frankly didn't believe in the power and and in the authority and in the sovereign rights of of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the first place, right? So there was a lot of, you know, like negative uh, um, ideas about Austria-Hungary even before Franz Ferdinand was killed, you know? So Austria, you know, Austria basically felt emboldened to make a stance and say like, well, fuck, These, these other countries don't respect us. And, you know, this Serbian basically terrorist group, you know, in their opinion, Came and murdered our, you know, crown prince who was working on trying to, you know, uh, basically quell a lot of these ethnic divides, uh, and um, you know Germany's got our back, so let's go hard to go home, you know, and and you know there's a lot of shit going
1: on there. There, there was a famous uh, quote from a German general. I forgot who it was during the war, but Austria, Austria, they suffered a lot of defeats and. Serbia whacked them in the beginning of the war. Even Serbia kind of punches above their weight class in terms of warfare. Um, right. Because they
0: were a smaller country They were as much, well. they they much a much smaller, smaller country.
1: They were, out in, they, uh, they, were, they were much smaller. And they whacked them in the beginning of the war. And um, the, famous, the, the famous quote is that um, the Germans said they're tied to a corpse.
0: <laughs> the yeah t- well austria-hungary t- was the corpse there yeah they're tied situation. to a
1: corpse because the germans would have to constantly bail them out in the war over and over again and also because we're talking about 11 different ethno-national groups there'd be reports of like the slavics who would put down their weapons and join the russians and stuff like that so mm-hmm. there was a lot of that going on it wasn't it wasn't a uh, it wasn't an ideal situation but um, going back to, to Germany, I have a quote from, from a historian, Ralph Rako, and he has a pretty insightful, uh, some insightful context about this. Scholars have now available to them the diary of Kurt Reisler, private secretary to the German chancellor, Beth um, Bethmann From this and other documents, it becomes clear that Bethmann Hollweg's position in the July crisis was a complex one if Austria were to vanish as a power, Germany would be threatened by rampant pan-Slavism, supported by growing Russian power in the east, and by French revengeism in the west. By prompting the Austrians to attack Serbia immediately, he hoped that the conflict would be localized and the Serbian menace nullified. The Chancellor, too, understood that the central powers were risking a continental war, but he believed that if Austria acted swiftly, presenting Europe with a Rapid fail accompli, the war would be confined to the Balkans and the intervention of third parties avoided as much as possible. In this way, the German-Austrian alliance could emerge with a stunning political victory that might split the Entente and crack Germany's encirclement. So I think Germany, one of the major reasons why they gave this the green light is because you have to remember that Germany is encircled so where they are physically on a map it's
0: literally central Europe
1: literally like you can't get central into more central Europe. Yeah. you can't especially in 1914 on the on the east you have Russia and on the west you have France you're you're literally encircled they're both allies with each other so a lot of people say, blame Germany for being paranoid during the First World War I about this encirclement, but they weren't paranoid. They were encircled. Right. <laughs> they they absolutely wore, were encircled, mm-hmm. and they were risking a two-front war no matter what. And the growing populations of Russia um, and you know, pan-Slavism, they wanted to nip that in the butt as soon as possible. So that's why I think they gave them the green light, because they didn't want the concept of Pan-Slavism to, to, to grow within the Balkans and ultimately become a threat to them, especially if the, Austro, if, if the Austrians fell. They would be a lone country in the middle of Europe with nothing but enemies in their eyes. So I think they wanted to nip that situation in the butt as soon as possible. Right. They, want, they wanted to Soleimani them, you know? like They wanted to yeah. take it out before it became a problem. So another quote I have from, from Ralph Reiko. So the Austrians had believed that vigorous action against Serbia and a promise of German support would deter Russia. The Russians had believed that a show of strength against Austria would, would both check the Austrians and deter Germany. In both cases, the bluff had been called. Mm-hmm. Russia, and through its support of Russia, France, as well as Austria and Germany, was quite willing to risk war in July 1914. I want to talk about that,
0: actually, because, you know, that's totally true. I think, you know, everybody was using these alliance systems as a deterrent for war, and they felt, you know, whenever shit went down, they would lean on that mutually assured destruction of the time uh, to beat off the, the specter of war. But, you know, what's what I think we haven't covered and what's, what's missing here is that, you know, that worked for a little while, but... By the time leading up to this, and, and probably for a few decades beforehand, uh, the, there was this popular opinion among all of Europe, all the European countries, that war was imminent, that it was going to happen eventually, and that because of that, what they believed was a fact, that war would eventually happen, You know, they didn't welcome war, they didn't want war but they felt okay war's going to happen anyway so let's not be on the losing side and what this what this did was it sprung up a really big arms race right everybody started developing you know weapons i think you know just just previous to this germany's uh, um, uh uh defense spending had spiked considerably. They got to like 3.8% of their GDP, which was super high at the time, you know, in military spending. And countries all over Europe were using the specter of war as a means, like as a, a rationality to, you know, uh, bolster their military budgets all over Europe. Right? And so everybody is locking and loading for for a couple decades leading up to this. And then we hit this one situation, and now you know Austria and Hungary are are, are bluffing, you know, with their with their uh, um, ultimatum. The Russians are bluffing with their show of strength, and lo- as Ralph Rieko points out, that you just you know um, uh, uh, read, you know, they were both willing to go to war by that point because they felt that they had. I mean, there's a number of factors, but they had already and been building correct, up their, their arms. Correction:
1: the second quote is by James Joel. Sorry, oh, about James that. Joel. Sorry,
0: um, but y- y- you hear what I'm saying on that. It's like it's they were everybody in Europe already assumed that a war was going to happen eventually, and so they were planning for this eventuality, right? Uh, and you know, the the clock just ran out on the effectiveness of of the mutually assured destruction of the alliance system by this point.
1: Yeah, and remember, so the alliance system that's set up right now is you have Germany and Austria and then you have Russia, France, and Serbia. So, it's tripwire. So Austria declares war on on, on Serbia, Serbia, right? And then Russia declares war on Austria. Germany declares war on Russia. France declares war on Germany. So that's the tripwire, right? So all these now, all of the it's a domino effect. It's 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 a powder keg. And yes, all these countries are competing with each other. Now we got to remember why are it's kind of it's kind of funny. And, and now I'm, I'm kind of just pontificating and I'm thinking out loud. Why is there a major isolation? And obviously the British joined the war effort as well. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, on the side of the Entente, you know, the Triple the, Entente. The, the, mm-hmm. tri, the Triple Entente. And Italy was actually in the Central Powers as well, you know, prior, but they left to join the other, the winning side. Um, right. But, you know, why did they form a unity in the first place? I think it's because Germany mainly was a new country. Germany was brand new at the time, they were kind of an upstart. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And all these other empires you have the British Empire, the French Empire and the Russian Empire. They all have a bit of a legacy going on. You know, they all they've all been around in a while and more importantly they're around when they at the at the best time to start scooping up colonial possessions. So I think that you have kind of a it's the battle of the imperialist versus the militarist <laughs> kind of <laughs> yeah. in, in, in a nutshell. Um, And I know I'm kind of being, this is like a really super simple way to explain it, but it's a battle of the upstarts first the uh, versus the, the 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 new bloods versus the old bloods and right you know the, the the old the new bloods they're trying to confiscate for their lack of colonial possessions by beca- having these humongous armies like the german army at that time was a fucking menace right like it as made... i
0: mentioned they they were doing 3.8% mm-hmm. uh, of their gdp every year for for just their military which is super high for the, for military spending at the time
1: they were a menace. They were they were the best army in the world at that time, mm-hmm. by far. Like, there's no comparison. Um, they took the Prussian military culture and they expanded upon it with a bigger population with all of Germany. Right. And, um, you know, what, what Germany's plan was in this case, you know, if a war started, in the case that they were in a two-front war... Was something called, and it's this is this like a this is like argued among historians if this plan ever existed or not the Schlieffen plan, but you know I think it, I think it existed as far as I know. There's like enough record on it, I feel, but it was by a a, a general named Alfred von Schlieffen. Schlieffen plan. And it, basically, they were the war plans. If Germany ever got into a two-front war with Russia and France, it was the plan. It was drawn up before World War One even started. It was drawn up like two, three years ago. And this guy, Alfred von Schlieffen, was obsessed with this plan. Like, he would—let um, me explain what this is. And I, I know you you know what it is as well. So right. the plan is, is that—so Russia would take a while to mobilize because they're big and clunky. Also, their country is massive their their country is massive and they still had surfed them at that time. Yeah. <laughs> you know they were a bit behind the other countries so their plan was to knock out France as soon as possible but the problem was is that France and Germany's border was heavily fortified it's about the border is not even that long What the border between France and, and Germany I forget the exact mile but it's it's not that big. It's heavily, heavily fortified. So you can't just march over to France. Not at that time. Um,
0: right. And again, the, to, to point out, like everybody in Europe was, had the uh, idea that war was going to happen at some point and they had been stockpiling weapons and fortifying their, their borders for years. So yeah.
1: you know, It was a timing thing. Right. It was a timing thing. It's like war is going to break out. Um, do we have the advantage to win this war right now? Okay, let's do it now. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what happened. Like this major spark happened and all these countries are like, we're all going to go to war anyway. We might as well just do it now. And, you know, all that these, was definitely all, Germany's all position thought, for sure. Yeah, that was definitely Germany's position. And, you know, they felt they had the cars in place to, to, to pull this Schlieffen plan off. But the Schlieffen plan was is that they were going to go into Belgium that was neutral and basically flank the French. Right. So they were going to go up to Belgium, and then they were going to bring their army down like a hammer down into France, into northern France, and then there was going to be another force that would go into into uh, central France, and they were supposed to meet. But the, the the large blunt hammer of the force was coming through Belgium, right? And, that's, and that was their plan to win the war. It was a pretty quickly. good
0: plan when you think about it, because you know, again, that that French border was heavily fortified, right? Because they were they were in an alliance against. Germany. So they they were heavily fortifying that that border. They weren't heavily fortifying their border with Belgium because Belgium is a neutral country, right? So they weren't expecting Belgium to do anything about it, and they certainly weren't expecting Germany to go through Belgium.
1: They they but they also kind of were expecting it to happen as well. They 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 knew it. This guy Alfred von Schlieffen, he, apparently he was spending his holidays in Belgium just so he could like scope it see out yeah he could scope it out and just you know he, he knew exactly what the battlefields would look like and apparently he died when he died he uh was talking about the schlieffen plans like as he died he was like remember the <laughs> dan carlin dan carlin does a podcast on this mm-hmm. uh, and if you guys haven't listened to it listen to the blueprint of, Ar- of armageddon where he really nails into this topic like really hard like all everything with the schlieffen plan but um he was going on holidays there and his dying words, like he just lived for the Schlieffen plan. He lived for it. He was I need to see my Schlieffen plan. I need to see it. He was like he was like the uh
0: the guy that played football in high school and he was like the quarterback and like, you know, for the game winner, that last game of the season before he graduated high school, he, you know, did a Hail Mary play and it like pulled it off and like that's what he talked about for the rest of his life and like on his deathbed he was talking about that one Hail Mary play that he that he toss the winning the winning uh, 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 ball
1: so the British so the British so they have to go through Belgium and they do that so they, they, they do exactly that they go up into Belgium and then there's something called the rape of Belgium that happens where they start killing civilians they start occupying Belgium and the there's resistance and they do things like The Germans do things like indiscriminately kill civilians in villages where there's sniper fire, Mm -hmm. or if there's somebody who blows up a bridge, they'd go and they'd kill, you know, they, 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 they believed in collective punishment in, in Germany. It's like an old Prussian thing. So it was very harsh. Now what happens is that this is terrible pr this lands in britain this goes the british press spends this and they're like the germans are killing everybody (laughs) the germans are killing everyone um it's um they start playing this up they're like this is this is this is really really bad and um you know the propaganda goes out and you know they start betraying the they start portraying the Germans like, you know, animals and stuff like that, like an apes or, you know, just like kind of warmongering animals. So a lot of propaganda starts getting circulated within in, in the British press. And the British at this time, they also had a handshake deal with France that if France ever fought a war, then the British would come in and they would get their back on it. And it was a handshake deal. It wasn't a formal treaty like how France and Russia had one together. It was like It was something that was built out of like imperial pursuits and stuff like that. It wasn't a true, it wasn't a true like military alliance. And you also have to remember that the majority of history between France and Britain was antagonistic. Right. You know, it was only a 100 years ago that Duke of Wellington defeated Napoleon. So it was most of their, there was was contempt for for each other uh, to some degree on each side. Between the British and the French, and the French were like, "Fuck, what are we going to do the germans are going to are, are the german are, are the British going to become are they going to come in and are they going to join the war front now they they used the Belgium thing, the occupation of Belgium as the pretext to join the war on the side of the French now the British had their i don 't want to get too far into the British stuff because it 's like it warrants its own conversation, but there was a huge arms race between British the brits and and the germans going on and it it, it specifically was their naval race so it it was like the dreadnought race where they were building these huge ships and for every single german ship the british would build two and eventually they were going to duke it out because of this huge naval race that they were having hey there i'm dylan lewis one of the hosts of motley fool money So they used it, the the you know the war powers or the war party, at be they, they they used that pretext to go in and to pounce on to pounce on Germany mm-hmm. and to nip that in the butt. But they all had their you know, all these countries had their reasons and they all not good reasons, but they all had their their pretexts and their and their foreign policy objectives, and it all was based off timing, like when's the right time to to hit each other, to whack each other, because like you said, war was going to happen anyway so you might as well get the best of your enemy when you can and they all had their different fears the germans was the fear of 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 russia's population and the encirclement of being right smack in the middle, the Austrians was the expansion of of Pan-Slavism. Mm-hmm. The French were were really worried about the Germany's population growth and and these German states becoming one country because they just got they had just previously previously got their ass kicked in a war in a Franco-Prussian War, right? And they felt threatened by Germany. The British and the Germans had a naval were having a naval arms race. So all these countries had their very dumb reasons to start this war and you know it was all set off by by an assassination by a you know a, a terrorist group basically yeah a terror a terrorist group that um that kind of whose philosophy was based off a mystical legend in it's it, that's my perception of world war one there's millions of perceptions that you can have yeah. but i mean generally the 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 alliance system did lead to the war and but it, it it took these it took fucked up foreign policies to start these wars in the first place yeah you know no, I i'd mean? agree with that I, i'd almost say that i you know the alliance system didn't help
0: you know it was you know the kind of the gas on the fire but it certainly wasn't the spark and it you know what i find so unfortunate about this whole situation is literally that um all of these countries in europe basically had it in their mind that war was going to happen regardless and rather than think of ways to avert war they just doubled down on all right we're gonna go to war so let's build more guns more tanks more boats more everything you know before you know before we get our asses kicked uh and 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 that's in my opinion what what set off this war Uh, that i see that as as more consequential because it's possible that if if they had thought okay it's a bad idea to go to war uh like if germany had the foresight to say it's a bad idea for us to egg on um austria-hungary uh to send that ultimatum and eventually to you know uh, Wage war against Serbia or or declare war against Serbia. If they had had the foresight to think, this is going to not end very well. You know, we're going to end up on a two with a two front war. If they had just had that foresight and, and rather than than taking making the assumption that that shit was going to happen anyway, think of ways to avert the war instead, whether that be diplomatically or otherwise. You know, it. It could have changed in, in, in much in the same way that if that if uh, Russia had the foresight to, to think, hey, if we egg on these Serbs and say, like, hey, we got your back and we're going to, you know, just go ahead and crush the Germans for you if, if they get in the way or, you know, hit Austria uh, ahead of time. You know, that would have be, it, it could have averted, you know, the, the bloodshed and 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 what's unfortunate about it is that, you know, we talked in the beginning of this. Uh, about the echoes of World War Three and all the memes that are going around, and I see a lot of that now. You know, I see I see the fact that you know we have alliance systems of sorts, right? Um, NATO for sh- for sure is an alliance system that's like on the books, and and some you know kind of handshake alliance systems, you know, with with Russia and say uh, uh, Syria or you know Russia and Iran. China's in the mix. Russia,
1: Russia, and Syria have a a legitimate alliance with each other. Right. I I, I guess
0: maybe I'm referring more to to Iran there. Russia and Iran is more
1: of like they're not. It's like a wink and a nod kind of. They're not historic friends. Mm -hmm. Like if the U S. invaded Iran, Russia would not. Russia is not getting up to defend Iran. I could tell you that much like if the US decided it'd be like okay let's just Russia would just be like all right well that's their problem we'll just watch maybe we'll sell Iran S300s but they wouldn't actually do that you never know in any case what 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 I'm trying to get at is that I feel like the Zeitgeist
0: today is is maybe not as extreme as World War 1 where literally every country and every person just had the going assumption that war is going to happen eventually you know we're, we're i feel like we're creeping towards that and you know when we when we had that episode just before the uh, uh, the u.s killed uh salami uh, and we and we were talking about what's going to be that you mean
1: soleimani we call him salami in, in case just for,
0: in, in case he didn't for, listen to the for, last for episode. short <laughs> um, you know it, we talked about like what's going to be that Franz ferdinand moment right And it's not just the Franz Ferdinand moment as we've seen, at least so far, you know, we killed Soleimani and then the Iranians responded. They responded at least, you know, relatively uh, um, like it wasn't extreme, you know, like they intended not to kill anybody with their retaliation. We don't know if that's over or not yet. Um, But if if we had this idea in mind and all the countries involved had this idea in mind that war is imminent, and it's gonna happen, you best believe somebody's gonna strike first. You know? And I think that's that was the really unfortunate part, you know, in, in looking into World War One again for this show for me, how everyone just had this going assumption and, and in my opinion that had a greater impact on starting the war than the alliance system itself.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think that, that it was already driven into I, I think a lot of it was just calling each other the everyone misread the situation and they tried calling each other's bluffs or they were bluffing and they didn't realize that the other countries would call their bluffs. And that had to do with their foreign policies of like, Hey, these wars are going to be inevitable. We might as well just do it now while we have the upper hand. And Mm -hmm. I think each country miscalculated their upper hand because everyone really lost that war. It wasn't, you know, Russia lost that war. Look what happened to them. Right. They went communist. Like, they, their society was destroyed and they ended up with the Bolshevik Party killing the Tsar and his family. Right. And There were they, definitely no,
0: lo- no winners. <laughs> there were losers and bigger
1: losers. There was, yeah, there was losers and bigger losers. Mm-hmm. There, was no, there were no winners in that war. The only, per, the only country that you can see as maybe a winner of that war, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but you could argue it, is the United States because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> during yeah. that time, the United, there was a huge transfer of wealth from London to New York. Um, because the U.S. was, you know, they were financing the, lo- the British,
0: right? But also they were relatively safe, I, an ocean away. Yeah, you know? they
1: were ocean away, and the U.S. casualties were horrific in its own case. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a hundred thousand people killed, right. in that war, just in such a short time period. There was right. They were any. E- they weren't even in it, it for was the whole year. time. Yeah, it was a year yeah. of that war, and that and the casualties were that high when the U.S. joined that war effort. Yeah, a lot of wasted life there. It's like, However, it wasn't on U.S. borders, so you didn't get the you didn't have the trench lines going down, going going down the country, and you know that millions of soldiers died within Germany, France, and Russia and Britain. You know, millions of soldiers died. It, the U.S. cost was relatively low compared to to them, yeah. and compared to other wars like World War II, where where the U.S. was in the war longer. But if the U.S. was in that war longer. I, it would have been it would have been really bad like the casualty rates probably would would be pretty comparable to that of world war Two. right if you think that, about one year and losing a hundred thousand soldiers that's like two 9-11s a month every month for the whole year just yeah just
0: think about that
1: and they were fighting a, a you know germany on their last straw like a largely kind of worn out germany mm-hmm. at that time um but yeah, there's no winners of that. Germany loses the war officially, but they take land away from them, and they get resentful, and they another they war also starts. Also, put a lot of economic war, sanctions I mean, the, on them, the and they war have to pay One, reparations. Yeah, World War Two is the direct consequence of the of the Treaty of Versailles and the and the punishment that was issued to Germany after the war. Because I think it's important to talk about this World War One because there's a lot of Discussion on who started World War I But I think the discussion should Be more so how did it start Rather than who started it, mm-hmm. it Because I think every Country involved des- Deserves their Deserves their, their, share uh, the their, 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 their share of the blame Their share of the blame Because every, every country Probably had some means of De-escalating the situation and it seemed like Every country involved including Russia Germany, Austria France and Britain they all did their things To escalate the war and when they when they Could have like the British could have probably negotiated Some type of deal with Colonial possessions or something like that mm-hmm. If they really wanted to do it They didn't do it you know the French Didn't the French didn't have to Kind of pushed the Russians to, to to join the war because they wanted the annexed territory that they pre- previously lost in the Franco-Prussian War. Mm-hmm. The Germans ultimately, you know, they're the ones who invaded Belgium, a neutral country, and, and and try to do that big wallop at the end. And you know, it was their ally who declared war on Serbia, mm-hmm. and then you know, within Russia meddling within Serbian politics and kind of contributing to the Pan-Slavism that was going on within the Balkans it's it was or, or or fostering that type of hyper nationalism mm-hmm. you know every country had their share blunt of the war and in every in every country lost just like the of the tremendous loss of life that took place and we're talking about fucking the worst battlefield conditions like just living in shit in Literally living, shit. In, yeah. li- living in shit with rat infestations, lice everywhere, and that's just like the normal everyday living conditions. Like, um, there's this famous picture, it's like it really hits you hard when you look at it. It's called Hell, yeah, and it's by yeah. a French artist. I don't know if you've ever seen it, have, but yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's just called Hell, and it's of this French soldier. And I think it's based off Verdun, the Battle of Verdun, mm-hmm. which was a major battle between Germany and France in World War One. One of the biggest battles within the war, if not the biggest, is in terms of loss of life. Um, it's a soldier with a gas mask with a corpse in a in a in a, a um, in a landscape that kind of looks like the moon, mm-hmm. because he's in a. He's in like a mortar hole and with that's filled with liquid and water. It's just kind of it's just a, a lot of the art that came out at that time. Just the, the disfigured people. Yeah, uh, I mean one of my just, favorite
0: well, not favorite, but some of my favorite paintings from the uh, from the from that topic is a German painter by the name of Otto Dix, uh, and this in, this one in particular uh, that I like a lot. Uh, it's called the Scat Players, right? Uh, it's three uh, you know World War one German uh, uh, officers, and they're all sitting at a table playing some card game. I guess it's called scat, right? Uh, and it, I mean, look it up. it's crazy. it it's it's literally three like disfigured, fucked up, you know human beings playing this card game in it. and what it what it describes and what it shows is, uh, you know the, the cost of the war and what was kind of crazy was that you know field medicine was getting you know we talk about all the military technology that was getting good uh, for World War I but all the field medicine was getting much better as well and so what they were able to do is they were able to save a lot of people unfortunately they were horribly disfigured and when they come back home, you know this is what they look like. You know, like the the picture shows. You know, this one guy that's holding up his cards with his foot, and he's got like some tube coming out of his ear. And then another guy has like you know uh, a metal plate or some shit that's in his on his skull to replace what was missing of his skull. Another one's got like a metal jaw, you know, and no legs. You know, and it's it's just uh, it's graphic, uh, and it and it really just it just shows like how how terrible it was to to be in that war and how fucked up it must have been to have survived it for some people because you know their loss of limb is is
1: an understatement for for what happened and not only that but the mental damage as well absolutely it, 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 there's a famous picture um, it, it's uh, of a shells it's a, of a shell-shocked british soldier in a trench and um if you haven't seen it, just type in "shell shock soldier" or "World War One" into a, it. To a, if you typed in "shell shock soldier," it'll probably be the first thing that pops up. But it's of this guy um, who's undergoing a severe amount of trauma. Obviously, he is. Um, he's smiling. It's just kind of like the, yeah. the dead haunting smile with his helmet like tilted over. Yeah. And that photo, yeah. it's during it's during I think an arti- during an artillery raid. It's just something that that kind of peers into your soul. It's like really, really a haunting image to to look at. And that was the war. Like that that war was just a devastating tragedy that happened over you know fucked up power politics that were taking place within Europe. And. uh I think you got to reflect on you know the human toll of, of of uh what fucked up foreign policies end up had ended up doing to just entire generations of people like look at look at uh, a lot of the writing that came out of britain at that time in france like a lot of it's super depressing like um even even the u.s there's a, there's so many writers that that came out you know, kind of writing based off their experience. Didn't
0: Tolkien uh, uh, get popular out of the World War One? There, you know, he started. So writing. Tolkien,
1: Tolkien, was a he was a he was a scholar uh, and he was a linguistics professor, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, people compare him to George R. R. Martin. Well, However, the other he way was way around, more, yeah, it's yeah they they compare them together and but they're very different when you think about it. Like J. R.R. Tolkien, they both lived very different lives. Like George R. R. Martin, I love George R. R. Martin, by the way. But he, um, you know, he was a Hollywood writer, screenwriter type guy um, who wrote like a lot of science fiction and stuff, and like just like a career writer who wrote like just massive amounts of stuff. And then Jr. Um, Jr. Tolkien was a veteran of World War One, um, and he a lot of he was in a club um, with a lot of other like famous. Young scholars, and all of them died except him, mm-hmm. and he served a lot of time in, in the trenches um, in World War One. And I think he was eventually removed. I forget the exact story. But I think he was removed from a severe case of li- a lice <laughs> from the trenches. I could be p- wrong about that, but or trench foot or something like that. Hmm. I forget the exact story, but a lot of people's, people people kind of claim that a lot of his writing on World War One. Uh, was base or a lot of his writing on Lord of the Rings was based off his experience in World War One. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess you could say there's there's definitely some themes. I mean, the Battle of Helm's Deep sounds like something straight out of yeah uh,
0: you know uh, a World War One scene. So it's possible.
1: I think I think that one of the you know there's the ending uh when the Eagles are coming mm-hmm. when the Eagles kind of come out of nowhere to save Frodo right. and that's, Sam. That's
0: supposed to be representative of the United States, right?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. but um I don't uh, maybe. I mean I I'm assuming he he kind of based Mordor off what a World War 1 battlefield would look like when you when you think of the description because those those fucking battlefields certainly looked like it certainly seemed like Mordor like the like the moon. Right. If you guys haven't seen hardcore, if you guys haven't listened to Dan Carlin's hardcore history on his his series on World War 1, you guys should listen to that immediately. It's so it's great also make sure you Um, have about seven hours of time to dedicate to it because it's super long (laughs) like 30 like more like 36 hours of time that shit's like that that it's like a six-part series and each episode's three to four hours long yeah it's really it's very very long but yeah um i i think health good discussion on this topic is 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 good and and kind of understanding what the hell happened and, and how that global crisis and how the world went mad for four years, um, which led to the war going insane again shortly after during World War II, um, as a direct consequence, should be, should be reviewed and, I think, reflected on a lot uh, when thinking about modern-day foreign policy. So do you want to transition into foreign policy just some yeah, quick yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. Let's to talk kind about of about some stuff up. that happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So first thing is first, I want to talk about that plane. Um I uh the the Iranian pl- um plane that uh, Yeah, so you were so you actually were uh, absolutely right and mm-hmm. you, and you kind of called it in real time as well mm-hmm. to your to your credit. Now that's a tragedy as well. Yeah. Um so 176 lives lost. It was just Yeah, I ran shot down that plane by accident because um Obviously, they don't have their shit together because when you think about it, Damascus gets bombed on a regular basis. They mm-hmm. never accidentally shoot down commercial airlines, right? Right. Well, I you mean, know, they've been they've
0: been in a civil
1: war for years now, so I think you know they
0: they don't flinch you know, uh, as easily. You know, Iran hasn't been in an active war for a very long time, so you know it's uh, they they made a really big move, power play against the United States. They yeah, it, to to some would even argue that they were bluffing. You know, um, in that respect, you know that was a that was a a warning shot. Uh, well, they they decided to destroy equipment rather than personnel, right? You know, and and they were on high alert. You know, it's it's so fucking unfortunate. Uh, but I, I like you said, man, I called it. I I I don't know what it's like to be in war, but I can I can imagine. You know, and I can imagine that you know the situation on the ground was they saw something that they. Didn't think was supposed to be there. And, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it.
1: So they pulled the trigger. Apparently they arrested some people who were involved in that. Yeah. But it's, it makes me think of... Um, you ever watched the show Breaking Bad? I didn't, actually. That's the one so, series I didn't, never got into. But So, me. spoiler alert for people who haven't watched Breaking Bad. But it's not... I'm only going to spoil the end of the second season. So, um, there's... In the beginning of second season of Breaking Bad, there is a, um, a pl- there's like a, what do you call a cold opening? Uh, but it shows like the future, and it shows what the le- the whole season's leading up to that one event. Right, what is right. that called cinematically? Like I, I don't know, but like they show the future first thing, and then,
0: and then they yeah. Beat so it so up, they're right.
1: showing. So it's of the of a uh, of a plane. That has uh, the, the debris of a plane in a pool, and you're seeing like stuffed animals and stuff, and it's, you know, remains of the plane in, in a pool that are floating around. And there's a pink, everything's in black and white except this pink stuffed animal, which kind of like is highlighted. And you eventually go through the season and you kind of find out that what led to the plane crashing because it's two planes collided with each other. What led to that happening was the events that took place from Walter White and Jesse, like the two main characters of the show. Mm-hmm. And they're both completely unrelated when you think about it, because they're just, you know, they're selling meth. And how does that relate to this A airline crash? crash? Right. Mm-hmm. But they they show the connection of that happening, because what ends up happening is that they... A girl dies of a drug overdose and they're both involved in it Mm -hmm. in some way or another. I'm not going to explain the full details of the show. And her father is an airline controller and she he's under such grief that he accidentally um, he he makes a mistake where the planes collide with each other and all those people die. Mm -hmm. So like they kind of show that event. And I think that's kind of what happened with that plane. You know, it's. It, that was just a tragedy that didn't need to happen, and and it was a direct respo- It was a direct consequence of the escalation in foreign policy with Iran. You know, if there was no assassination of Soleimani. That wouldn't have happened in the long run, right? And we kind and of played this game, you know,
0: in the last episode too, where we went backwards in time for the, you know, the history of events. You know, we can keep going beyond just Soleimani, and, and we can go all the way to back to like the fifties. You know, and there's a tit for tat going on. But I totally agree with you. This is a result
1: of escalations of, of, um, you know, of, of tensions. Yeah, and those people didn't like that. That's just it's just such a tragedy. Now another thing I wanted to talk about as a follow up was so you know, we try to be fair with Trump and all that, and you know, I'm more of somebody I, I would say that I probably defend Trump more than Danny does. Um yeah, I don't think I defend him very much at all. Yeah, Sometimes. but I'll I very, very I try to I try to give Trump credit when I think he's doing something well. I I criticize him harshly when I think he's doing something I don't like, so you know, there's different different scenarios where I either criticize him or, or I shit on him. And I've been shitting on him lately because I completely disagree with his Iran policy. And um, he—so this impeachment thing that has been going on, you and I have different opinions on it, mm-hmm. but I thought that the impeachment that was brought up by the Democrats on Ukraine, the quid pro quo thing— mm-hmm was complete horseshit, and, you know, the stupid little quid pro quo with a victimless Ukrainian president who says he wasn't even a victim, and I thought the whole thing was retarded. That was the only word I can use for it. Now, you have something where Trump now says, you know, he assassinated a foreign general. He assassinated a foreign general. A political figure, so he's not assassinating some some ISIS member running around in the desert saying Allah Akbar. He's assassinating a political figure, a popular figure with at the very least fifty percent of the population within Iran. Um, he kills him, and he says it. He had to do it because he was planning an attack on 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 embassies. So there was an imminent threat, and that's why he had to do that. That's why he had to kill a popular leader with Iran, where a country we're not officially at war with, but we kind of are at war with now at this point. Um, He says it's an imminent threat. Mark Esper comes out and says that there was no evidence of that at all. (laughs) Mark Esper is like, no, that that wasn't going to happen. Now, Mike Lee, and Rand Paul, both came out. Yeah, they were and very he upset. Both about said this, yeah. that. In Mike Lee, I was criticizing Mike Lee before because I generally like Mike Lee a lot. Right. He's one of the senators I like. The and bill with him and Bernie
0: Sanders was uh, to stop. he yeah.
1: Mike Lee was saying that he was excited, like he you know was supporting the strike on Soleimani, and I was disappointed with him. He came out and he said that. The briefing he got from Donald Trump was the worst briefing, security briefing he's ever received, ever in his nine years as a U.S. senator. The worst briefing he's ever right. received. And a lot of shit happened in the last nine years. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things happened, and and he, he's not. Mike Lee is gonna. I think he wants to be on the side of Republicans, so for him to say that, I think it's it's pretty credible of how blousy it was and Rand Paul came out and said the same thing. Right. Now how they they there was no evidence at all that this guy was going to attack any US target or any US asset. There was zero evidence. Zero, zero, zero evidence that this was gonna happen. So they lie. They lied about this. That's a I don't understand how this isn't a bigger deal a much bigger deal than the Ukraine than the Ukraine fiascos. Or we're talking uh-huh. about a... Even if everything about Ukraine is, is, is real and there was an actual quid pro quo that went on where he was hanging foreign aid over his head and every single thing the Democrats are saying is 100% accurate. This is 100% more alarming than that, regardless. Well, I mean, what are, we are we they going to do? in situation him? I mean, I'm down if you <clears throat> want to, but... We're having one situation where a U.S. president... you. Commander in chief says, "All right, um, let's just kill him. Kill, let's kill this political figure that will that will. There is a percentage chance that we could get into a war with Iran, or some target could be bombed. We're immediately putting soldier. We're immediately putting soldiers that we do have and bases in Iraq in danger. Immediately, immediately. I mean, they're bombed with ballistic missiles. That could have happened in a different way." Right, I, I that could have happened with a, that could have been a lot more tragic than it had than, than it was, which is which is good that it wasn't that bad. That could have been a lot worse. He put those guys immediately in danger, right? And then also sent a bunch. And then more. he lied about it. And then he lied about it. He also sent a bunch more over there, uh, <laughs> and are is actively putting them in danger. So we're talking about the the policy the trump policy in iran has been so unbelievably transparently dishonest that i don't understand how you pick a dog if you're going to pick a fight you're going to pick a fight with his with his behavior with ukraine and not focus 100% of your behavior on his 100% of your uh condemnation on his behavior when it comes to iran i'm a, i'm going to stop you right now, there now,
0: because I agree with your sentiment about that this is much worse but that didn't like they didn't happen at the same time so we're making a false equivalency here they made they made a, a
1: false equivalent I'm not they, making a false They equivalency. made a big deal
0: about Ukraine because in in my opinion and in many people's opinion it was a big deal and then he does this other thing that's an even bigger deal so I think personally speaking if you're watching the news you know we had news about the 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 Soleimani killing and the the bombing nonstop on all the mainstream media lots and lots of people are very upset about this you know we did have a bunch of people that were supporting the killing of uh, Soleimani. we did have people uh you know that Uh, had said uh that the briefing was perfect and awesome and that we had plenty of reason to go and kill him you know but we also have an equal or even greater i would uh argue response to the contrary that the thing is like like we we can address both things we can totally do both and now and my my thing is that like at this moment we are like uh Pelosi just sent over the uh, articles of impeachment. She picked her managers to, to prosecute, you know, and it looks like we may be getting a couple witnesses on that um, Ukraine scandal. And there's been a bunch of shit that's happened since then that we haven't talked about on the show and certainly not a lot of people have been talking about in general in the news because of this, what, what I would also agree is a bigger deal because it, it poses an imminent threat, uh, you know, for war. Um, but we can address both. So if you want to go back and like, like impeach him again, like for you know almost starting World War III, like sure, let's do that. I'm on. Board. I would
1: want to throw out pretty much all of the impeachment, throw that out the table, the Ukraine stuff out the table. Just we're not going to agree on this, so I don't know if it's any point diving further into this. Mm-hmm. But I, I I think we'll both agree on this point. Um, we'll disagree on the Ukraine stuff, but we'll agree that the Iran thing is a lot more important. Now, I just want to make one more one more observation about things that have come out in the news. So this plan was an eight month old, or seven seven month old plan. Mm-hmm. So Soleimani was on a kill list for seven months right. at least. Right. Um, so there is nothing
0: imminent about seven months there was ago. Nothing, there was
1: nothing imminent. So <laughs> right. the story completely changed. That's on that's and, on some
0: you know <laughs> six months away from the nuclear bomb you yeah, know timeline.
1: <laughs> it was it was a li- the list, it, Mike Pompeo then pivoted it's like all right it wasn't because he was actually going to do anything we just wanted to send a, we wanted to send a message to russia and china which i don't what? even i don't even quite follow that what <laughs> you're trying to send a message to russia and china by, by killing assassinating an iranian s- general by killing an iranian general what the fuck is wrong with you right this guy should be Thrown out into His stuff should be taken Thrown out on the White House lawn And it should be filmed So everyone else So everyone in the world Could see him picking up his shit On the White House lawn What the hell's matter With Mike Pompeo He's a total religious fanatic And I listen I have nothing against religion Um, You know I come from a Christian family I have nothing against religion. This guy is a total evangelical, why am I saying this evangelical. evangelical fanatic who believes in nutty stuff. This guy is, has no business being in any type of position of power. And the fact that he came out and said that we're doing this to send a message to China and Russia. You do know that. If there was ever a war to to ever ha- to happen, and assassinations became the norm of how that war was was fought, like we just started assassinating each other's leaders and stuff like that. You know, you would be on that list, right, right. Mike Pompeo? Like you don't you want to start of tick for tack on on, on assassinations, a quid pro quo, if you will, <laughs> a quid, just assassinations <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> what what the hell's matter with this guy all right but i think i honestly i think he's, I, 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 think he's fi- I, I think he's i think he's gonna get fired i think he, uh, mm. he should get fired uh, and i think he is going to get fired i honestly think you're think placing, Trump is, you're placing think a lot Trump of blame is, on
0: mike pompeo on this one i agree with you he's fucking batshit crazy and this was a no, stupid I mean, idea I, but you
1: have to you ha- I, i'm placing a lot of blame on mike Pompeo's because mike pompeo is the snake in the ear like Trump doesn't know what the hell's going yeah, on. Yeah, well, in the Middle East. Trump was he's the one pretty, that hired him, and Trump was the he, one that pulled the trigger. I I agree. Trump, I Trump deserves the, the fair share of the blame. I'm just saying the snake in the ear is Mike Pompeo. Like he's either listening to the, the Mike Pompeo, Rand Paul sometimes, or, or Tucker Carlson on the good side. But like, what time is it? It's it's almost time. I think we let's call we, it quits. Uh, <laughs> let's call it quits. All right, guys, thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you want to support the show, just rate and review the show. Um, you could, uh, if you're on Apple, of course, just rate and review the podcast. Um, send the musical ideas to info at com. What historical topic or topic that we often speak about should we begin writing a Broadway musical for and start doing planning the pre-stage of production? <laughs> <laughs> we got to figure out a better idea than the Shaw and I. Um, so anything you think of, we'll read them out loud in the show. Um, if, you, if we get enough of them or if we get some, um, I think that'd be really fun. So send your historical topic Broadway musical idea, and uh, we'll read them out on the next show to info at com, <laughs> Info at com, <brohistory.com>, historical musical. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, any last words? Uh, bonus points if you can write, uh, you
0: know, um, a couple of lines of this of the opening song.
1: Yeah, if you do that, then Danny will sing it. <laughs> I will sing it. <laughs> All right. Um, now you're now you're not incentivizing people anymore. You're, making them, you're deterring people from doing it. All right. Peace. See ya.